Please take your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 27. Uh, the good news is we're going to go through 1 Samuel 27, 28, and 29. And before you look at your watch, um, I'll tell you that we won't be doing the entire chapter, we'll be doing sections of it, but they all belong together, 1 Samuel 27, 28, and 29, as we look at backsliding, backsliding. You heard the word this morning often, you heard it in the songs we sang, or at least you saw the concept. In the church I grew up in, I often heard the word backsliding. It was, in fact, almost always used for someone who had been amongst us, who had made some profession of faith, who said that he or she was a Christian, and then got away from God and didn't come to church at all and seemingly had no fruits in their life. And sometimes I remember we'd have prayer meetings and we'd say, let's pray for the backslidden. And we'd list out names bigger than the church. You know, there was more people that, in this backslidden list than were even coming to our church. Well, this was a concept that I later found out is not in the Bible. The idea that you can have people who are indistinguishable from the unsaved. There's no fruit in their life. Nothing like Christ. But because at some point they prayed a prayer, we then anoint them with the title of backslidden. As I went on in my Christian life, I found out the Bible doesn't have a category for someone who shows no fruit, no evidence of Christianity, who's still a Christian that you can call backslidden. In fact, in the Bible, whenever the term backslidden is used in Jeremiah, it usually refers to total apostasy, a, a, a false believer, someone who's not a true Christian. At the same time, I did find that the Bible does have a category for Christians who are in a state of spiritual decline. The Bible definitely records the phenomenon of believers who get away from God, who begin to, yes, slip back. The Bible does record Christians who drift, who leave their first love, who weaken in their spiritual disciplines. They're not in the flesh, but they are walking according to the flesh. The Bible records people like John Mark, who seemed good and then they abandoned the mission and turned back from Paul and Silas, but later came back. People like Peter, who in the moment of fear denied the Lord three times, but yet came back to the Lord. And so we can talk, not strictly speaking, but loosely speaking about backsliding in the life of a true believer. And one of those is David. The Bible records in the life of David, more than once, a drift away from God, a spiritual decline. One of those times is recorded for us here in 1 Samuel 27 through 29. After many victories and many acts of obedience and doing the right thing, David declined for a season and fell into a pattern of sin. David's slide back really gives us a remarkable kind of blow-by-blow sequence of what happens when a believer declines. As we look into David's life this morning, we're really going to see stages of a believer getting away from God. It's a path, a path that starts with despair, that's followed by deception, and can end up in defection. And we're looking into David's life not just to sort of point fingers and look down our noses, but really to see a mirror. We see ourselves, don't we? We see ourselves in the life of David, and as we look at him, 
we will see our own failings, our own flaws, but graciously we'll also see the way back. So let's look together at these signs of David's backsliding and begin with the first one, David's despair. We see David's despair in the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 27. Let's read them, David's despair. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than, I, than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish the son of Maoch, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. David's despair. This is the first sign of David turning back and backsliding. He despairs of God's goodness in his life. Where do you see that? Verse 1, he says, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. He's certain that Saul is going to take him down. This is a far cry from the man who wrote Psalm 16 verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. One of the first signs of backsliding is that our hope in God's promises evaporates. We become pessimistic. We start to look at our lives and at reality through unbelieving eyes. Things will never get better. There is no solution. We even can look back and say there was no point to my suffering. Things can't improve. Nothing ever changes. Question. Does unbelieving pessimism come from Scripture? The person speaking this way is not quoting a Bible verse. God has never yet dropped a pessimistic thought into a man's head. God is not the God of despair. God is not the one who removes hope. This coming out of David's mouth is purely man-centered reasoning. It's humanistic. He's thinking to himself, the only way to escape Saul destroying me is going to be to escape to foreign lands. The only way to solve this situation will be to take matters into my own hands. You know why? Because prayer and waiting on God and all that spiritual talk that they keep giving me, it just keeps the same trial going. Nothing ever changes. Pretty soon, Saul is going to win. How do you get to this place of despair? This is the tail end of an extended trial, of going through the same painful lessons. We saw recently why God often repeats the same exam, why we tested again and again. And David has been on the run for five years. He's endured the hardship of being a fugitive, the hardship of being slandered, the hardship of being abused by people like Nabal, 
The hardship of having held his men back when he could have taken things into his own hands and killed Saul many times. He's been wronged for years and years and years. And maybe the hardest trial of all is the trial of uncertainty. You ever been there? Uncertainty. What's going to happen? Can I pay the bills this month? Why doesn't it just clear up? Why can't it just be as simple as other people's lives? Years and years of an uncertain future, an uncertain outcome, an uncertain income. David is now at a place of despair. Now don't get me wrong, he didn't have to despair. Despair though is a choice that he made after the fatigue of resisting temptation has eroded his defenses. It's not that the trial must do this to you. You could choose to respond very differently to it. But the longer it goes on, the more you're tempted in this direction. And we're tempted to take our eyes off the Lord, off His promises, onto our own reasoning. I think it's very telling in verse 1 that the Scripture tells you where David said this and to whom did he say it. What does your text say? And David said in his what? In his heart. David is not addressing the Lord. He's not praying. He's not talking to God. Very often, David, in his moments of anguish, has said really extreme things. If you've read the Psalms, Oh Lord, where are you? Why do the wicked prosper? Have you forsaken me? He said these extreme things, but notice he's still saying them to God. He's still praying. There's still something between him and the Savior. He's still communing. At least the anguish is still a, a conversation. But now David is not addressing the Lord. He's addressing himself. He's listening to himself. He's speaking like an unbeliever. And as he does so, he's forgotten all the promises. He's forgotten that he was anointed by Samuel. And we remember that means he can't perish until God's purposes are done with him. He is immortal until God is finished with him. He could have just remembered that. There is no way that Saul will get to me so long as I remain faithful. It's in God's will. But David is weary of his trial. And watch yourself when you are weary. When you are tired, watch your heart. The length of the trial is tempting David to take his eyes off the Lord, off his word, off his promises, view his circumstances the way unbelievers would. Contrast that with the Lord Jesus. When he faced the worst trial of all, the cross, he said, Now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came into this hour. Father, glorify your name. And in that moment, the Lord Jesus kept his eyes on the Father. He didn't know what else to ask for except the glory of God. Always a safe request. Lord, I don't know. I, I, I want it to stop. I don't want it to stop. Lord, if this cup can pass from me, remove it. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Let your will be done. Your glory, because that's always best. Lord Jesus kept his eyes on the Father, but David has taken his eyes off the Lord and he's looking for humanistic solutions. And what is his solution? He now looks for deliverance from Israel's enemies, the Philistines. Now practically speaking, this is a good solution. Purely pragmatically, it makes sense. Saul is not going to hunt him in the Philistine towns. It would be an act of war if Saul arrived with an army to, at the Philistine doorstep but in order to do this, David is abandoning Israel. He's turning to live among idolaters. 
Second Samuel 5.21 tells us that Philistia, the, these cities, were full of idol temples and idolatrous priests. And so David is turning to the world to help him instead of waiting on the Lord. So he does that. He goes to Achish, the king of Gath. You remember, we met this man a few chapters ago when David had that rather infamous period of dribbling down his beard in order to look mad. Well, it's the same king, but this time he's not alone, and so he's not in danger. It's not like he'll just be arrested and brought before the king on his knees. He now has a formidable force of 600 men. He's not in any danger of being arrested or imprisoned. It's even something of a threat to arrive at this king's town with 600 armed men. David can bargain with this king. And as he bargains, wanting to stay amongst them, think though of what he's exposing his men and their wives and their children to. Through his despair and his despairing responses and his compromise, what's going to happen to the consciences of these people as they see these idol temples? As they see these images to Dagon, as the little children now watch worship of Dagon and they see the vileness and the immorality that goes with pagan worship. See, when you backslide, you affect others, not just yourself. Of course, he's received and he goes into the city of Gath. Soon David then goes to King Achish and he asks, can my men and their women and children move to a more secluded location? Now he asks this, he claims the reason he's asking is because he's just not worthy to dwell in the city of the king. But it's very likely that the real reason is that he just doesn't want the king to see what he's going to be up to when he starts raiding people. You see, with women and children, this could easily have been a group of between two and 3,000 people all, all in all. And that kind of group would have put a severe strain on the resources of the city of Gath. How do you get water and food to all these people? So King Achish is almost too happy to say, sure, go to another city. And he's given the town of Ziklag. This was actually a former Israelite town in the tribe of Simeon that had somehow been conquered by the Philistines. So it's probably like a ghost town. There's probably houses that are built, but no one's living there. It's about 40 kilometers to the south. And David now moves his men and all of their families down to this town of Ziklag under Philistine control. Well, at this point, David probably has a false sense of security, right? Things seem to be going well. Uh, Saul's not after him anymore. Looks like his troubles are over. That's often how backsliding feels. Yeah, you know, since I started just not being so serious about the things of God, I think things are going better. But at what price? He's become a servant to the enemy. He calls himself the servant of King Achish. He now goes into a lengthy period of compromise. He lives amongst God's enemies for 16 months, a year and four months. A year and four months of taking his eyes off the promises of God, turning inward to his own unbelieving reason. Now, whenever there's a spiritual decline that comes from despair, comes from not believing the promises, looking inwardly, soon there'll be a second sign, another sign of backsliding. So look secondly now at David's deception. David's deception. Verse 8. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. 
Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremielites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither men nor women alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. Deception. Well, you can understand why he's doing this. When you have a group of probably two or three thousand and you go and live in a ghost town, you can be sure there's no pick and pay there, right? There's no food shops and there's no fields that have been nicely kept cultivated for you. There's nothing to eat. So there really is going to be a long period of time before they can cultivate food. That will take another year or more. So the only way you can survive for the time being is to basically be Vikings, You go and raid other people's stuff and steal. Well, that's what David and his men do. Well, he chooses to raid only non-Israelites. So he chooses to raid these people called the Geshurites, the Gershites, and the Amalekites. These were Canaanites who had never been driven out of the land completely. In fact, the reason Amalek is still in the land is that Saul didn't do his job back in chapter 15. So in one sense, David is just raiding people who shouldn't be there. Uh, Unbelievers, idolaters who refused to submit to Israel, who just intimidated Israel in the time of Joshua. And he's destroying them the way Israel was originally commanded to. But this is not the ban that was given to Joshua because he's keeping the animals and the camels and the oxen for himself. What he's really doing is deceiving King Achish. He just doesn't want any survivors to report to the king on what he's doing. He's keeping the goods, but he's got to adopt a certain amount of cruelty without mercy to protect his lives. And you can see where he's come to. He's now living under a Philistine. He's got to still eat, but he can't raid Israelites without really denying his faith. So he has to raid non-Israelites. And in order for none of them to tell the king what he's doing, if they're allies of the Philistines, he has to destroy them completely. Cruelty. But the deception works. Look at verse 12. So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Wow, if he's really destroying all these Jewish tribes, because that's what David reported to Achish, he goes back to him and tells him, Oh, I'm killing Israelites. I'm destroying Hebrews left, right, and center. He isn't. But he's deceiving the king. And as he carries out this deception, Achish believes him. He thinks, wow, he has burnt his bridges with the Hebrews. Now think about it. We have a man in despair who now adopts this compromise. And as he adopts this compromise, deception begins to control his life. He's now deceiving the man he claims to be serving. He's beginning to live a double life. He can show one face to one group of people and another to another. He can speak the right language to the right people at the right time. When you and I backslide, this kind of deception can grow. Because with deception is duplicity. In other words, being a double-minded man, living a double life, having more than one face. You have a church face when you are with church people. Oh, yes, praise the Lord, brother. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Oh, God is so good. God is so good. But then you have a worldly face and a worldly speak and worldly jokes and worldly attitudes for when you're with the world. And neither of those groups will ever suspect that you belong to the other. But 
they think you're a member of their group alone. Live like this long enough, and you start to congratulate yourself on how clever you are, how quickly and easily you can switch personas. You tell yourself, how socially flexible I am. And you can look down at those naive people at church. They just don't understand what the world is like, and they wouldn't understand. I, I can't share with them. And then you think of those worldly people, and you say, shame. Those poor people, they have no faith. They don't understand how deeply spiritual I am. And then you congratulate yourself for how complex you are. But what's really happening is you're not complex. You're just losing your own soul. Who you really are is disappearing from yourself. You no longer really know where you belong because by your own doing, you belong nowhere. You're a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, neither hot, neither cold, lukewarm, neither refreshing nor comforting, just revolting. This is David. And notice this period in David's life is one where he wrote no psalms. No prayers come from his lips. No hymns to charm the people of God. When you're living a double life, you have no taste for the things of God, no relish for worship, no desire to look into the things of God. David's deception. He's living a double life. He's saying one thing to one person and another to another. But you can only do that for so long. At some point, the chickens come home to roost, and David's faked loyalty is going to be put to a final test. Despair leads to the compromise of deceit, but with deception comes the possibility of the worst compromise, defection. When you go over to the other side permanently, you renounce your loyalties to Christ, you renounce your loyalties to His church, you go over to the other side. This is apostasy, full-blown denial. And that's what David is faced with now. So look thirdly at David's possible defection. David's possible defection. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. Well, now the problem is with them. It's been many years since Philistia and Israel have had a proper war. There's been skirmishes, there's been battles, but probably the last big invasion was when David faced Goliath. Well, it seems the Philistines are ready for a second assault. And for some reason, they're not attacking in the south. They're going far north. Maybe they want to conquer the north and then move down. And they take from their five cities, they're going to gather the armies at a rendezvous point called Aphek. And from there, they're going to march further north to a place called Shunem for the actual battle. In fact, Shunem is only 11 kilometers from Nazareth. This is very far north. Well, Saul gathers his armies to Mount Gilboa, which is opposite that. And there's the Valley of Jezreel below. That's where Gideon fought the Midianites. 
Before the battle begins, King Achish then gives David the ultimate test of loyalty, the command to go out with his Philistine armies and do battle against Israel. David must prove he's a Philistine by fighting the armies of Israel. And if he will, Achish will promote him to his personal bodyguard, something like aide-de-camp, second-in-command. If not, well, David should just remember that his wives and children are back in a Philistine town called Ziklag at the mercy of the Philistines. Well, David's response is a mixture of pride and being cryptic. What does he say in response? Verse 1, you know what your servant can do. (laughs) He's claiming to be Achish's servant, not God's, and then he claims he'll achieve great things. But at the same time, what does that mean? What exactly will he do? I think he's being deliberately evasive. You know, it's like, will you attack the Israelites? Well, you know what I'm capable of. (laughs) What does that even mean? We know what he's capable of. He can do a lot of things on the battlefield. But to whom is he going to turn that capability on? Is David planning on actually attacking his fellow Israelites? Is he planning on turning on the Philistines in mid-battle and rallying the Israelites to himself? Well, he's been deceiving Achish till now. It's quite possible he planned on doing it again. But you know, I think it's more likely that it's possible he had no plan at all. He was simply going to see where things went. That's often what happens with extended periods of backsliding. You just don't have a plan. You don't know how you got here. You don't know what to do now that you are here. You're losing your identity more and more till finally you find yourself in some really unexpected situation that you have to extricate yourself from. You've been flirting with the world, well, finally they propose. You, you've been backslapping liars and thieves, well, finally they say, join us. You've been hanging out with the bad girls, well, they expect you to join them on Friday night. You've been treating the godless like friends, they expect you to join them on Sunday morning. David is now in a true dilemma. His double life has caught up with him. He must now either act like an apostate, attacking God's inheritance, the people of Israel. He must strike God's anointed, the very thing he's tried to not do. Or he must turn on the Philistines in the heat of battle, highly risky, risk capture by Saul, risk having his own wives and children back in Ziklag be slaughtered by the returning Philistines, See, he's been trying to cheat and have his cake and eat it, and now he's going to lose no matter what he chooses. But you know the good news? is God still has a heart for the backslider. God is gracious. God sees the web that we trap ourselves in. And when he does, he's waiting for us to just look up and say, help. And God now graciously intervenes so that David's foolishness is overruled. Look at chapter 29, verse 1. Chapter 28 takes us through Saul's consulting of the witch at Endor, but we resume the battle story in chapter 29, verse 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me these days or these years? 
And to this day I found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, David is ten thousands? Well, this is God's rescue. See, as the Philistines rendezvous at Aphek, and the armies march to be inspected, the princes of the Philistines notice David and his 600 men bringing up the rear. Well, Achish defends the loyalty of David. The princes of the Philistines don't trust him. They remember that many years previously, there had been Hebrews that had actually been fighting for the Philistines. And in the heat of battle with Saul and Jonathan, those Israelites had switched sides and begun to fight against them. Well, they weren't going to make that mistake again. And this isn't just any Hebrew. This is the famous David, the subject of all the songs. And if he's heroic in battle, they think he might just reconcile himself to Saul. Of course, they don't know Saul very well, but they think it's a real possibility. And they simply won't tolerate the chance of a double defection. Because if a man can defect once, he can defect twice. Well, Achish now has to explain this to his blue-eyed boy. So in verse 6, he calls him. Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, notice he's quoting the name of Israel's God, Yahweh. Surely as Yahweh lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now, go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Achish is upset. He says he thinks David is blameless, but the decision of the lords of the Philistines overrules his. Now watch what David says, verse 8. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now therefore rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you, and as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. <laughs> well now, as soon as Achish says to him, I'm sorry, but you can't, come and fight the Israelites. Well, now, because of his deception, David has to fake his disappointment. I mean, David is almost certainly relieved beyond measure to hear this. He's off the hook. Um, But such is his double life that he can't, in front of King Achish, go, phew, I really didn't want to anyway, so thanks a lot. You know, and so now he has to fake his disappointment. You know how hard that is, right? Someone tells you to do something you really, really don't want to do. At the last minute, they let you off the hook. You can't go, oh, yay. Instead, you have to go, oh, oh really? Are you, are you sure? Oh, I was, I was just about to. <laughs> really? You have to do that whole thing. And David has to do that here. Oh, I was so ready to fight the armies of my Lord and their enemies. And he may even be telling himself, Well, I mean the Lord God. When I say Lord, he thinks I mean him as the Lord. Whatever he's doing, it's a lie, right? Achish simply 
repeats the fact that David is blameless and tells him to depart the next day. And David does so. Actually, this is the last time that David and Achish will see each other, at least this way, because David is about to be catapulted to be the king of Israel. He'll never again serve King Achish. And this is a mercy. God has mercifully prevented David from having to deny his faith or perhaps commit suicide on the battleground or perhaps see his wives and children destroyed. His foolish backsliding has brought him to this place, but God is extricating doesn't that, doesn't that show you the heart of God? It doesn't mean God is done with David. As we're going to see in a future study of chapter 30, God is going to discipline David. He's going to bring more than just another trial. He will bring the painful consequences of his double life upon him. He's going to strip David down to being alone. No wives, no children. His men turning against him, talking about stoning him. And finally, David will bow the knee. And he will strengthen himself in the Lord his God. The backslider will come back. He will no longer talk to himself. He will talk to the Lord. He will get the ephod. He will seek guidance from God. He will make the will of God his home. Well, here's the lesson and the call to the backslidden. However far you've drifted, however cold your heart, however much you give up, or how much you've given up, God has not given up on you. God is so committed to your good, as we can see here with David. He's so committed to making you into the beautiful image of his son that he'll never stop training you, never stop teaching you, never stop pursuing you. And unlike human parents, God never gets tired. God never gets weary of doing it. God will outlast your stubbornness. Your heart may grow hard. His will is harder. So what must I do? How do I know if I'm backslidden? Ask yourself these questions. Have you stopped talking to God and resorted to just talking to yourself and listening to yourself? Has your interpretation of your life become man-centered? Were you trying to save yourself by your own hand and God is absent from the picture? Have you found yourself living a life of two faces, double-minded, courting the world, courting God, betting on both? Are you becoming increasingly identified with the world to where people would be surprised about your presence here this morning? Have you even been tempted to defect, to say, it's just not working, let me just go over to the other side? And beloved, it's time to come back, because God's waiting for you. And like salvation, it just begins with repentance. There's no formula. There's no ten steps. It's turning and trusting. Placing your faith in Him again and doing, as we read in Ephesians, the first works. Be in the Word. Pray. Worship. Be with God's people. Fellowship. Share the Gospel. Get sin out your life. Get righteousness in. Take those steps forward. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. The Christian life is very much like climbing a hill of ice. You cannot slide up. You have to cut every step with an ice axe. Only with incessant labor in cutting and chipping can you make any progress. If you want to know how to backslide, stop going forward. 
Seas going upward and you will go downward of necessity. You can never stand still. That's at the heart of spiritual growth. That's what David had to do. Stop standing still and strengthen himself in the Lord his God. May God use David's example in our life to draw him to himself. Let's pray. Our Father, take us away from whatever drift there's been in our hearts and return us to you wholly. Help us to fight the drift and do the first works and come back to you wholeheartedly. For you will receive everyone who comes to you. You will in no wise cast them out who come to you. So strengthen us further in Jesus' name. Amen.